Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Eric Weiner, and to begin, I asked him about research he's done on lobular carcinoma of the breast. I think traditionally we've thought of lobular cancer as being essentially like ductal cancer. We know, however, that lobular cancer is almost always, not 100% of the time, because nothing is 100%, but almost always estrogen receptor positive, very frequently progesterone receptor positive. If you look at studies that have used PAM50, most of the cancers tend to be luminal A, although there's an assortment of luminal Bs as well. Overall, the proliferative rate tends to be, on average, lower than in ductal cancers. What about HER2? Yeah, so only about 3% of lobular cancers are traditionally HER2 positive. Lobular cancers are sometimes where one sees gene mutation, and of course there are studies going on looking to see if patients whose tumors are traditionally HER2 negative but have a HER2 mutation respond to drugs like neratinib, and there are phase two clinical trials going on looking at that. I think the other thing that we've appreciated for quite some time is that chemotherapy, probably largely because most of these cancers are luminal A and are relatively slow growing, tends to be somewhat less effective, at least in terms of preoperative or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And I'm often reminded of a paper that came out of MD Anderson a number of years ago, where they looked at a series of women with lobular cancers who received preoperative chemotherapy at MD Anderson, and virtually none of the women who had tumors that were not considered appropriate for conservative surgery before chemotherapy were appropriate for conservative surgery after chemotherapy. They just didn't get the kind of tumor shrinkage you would like to see. What do we know about archetype or other genomic assays in patients with lobular? So the archetype assays tend to be not dissimilar from what you see in ER-positive ductal cancer, again with the exception that a higher proportion of these cancers have somewhat lower proliferative rates. And so there's a skew towards lower risk cancers, but it's by no means 100%. And there's no message out there from anyone that lobular cancer is a reason not to get oncotype or some genomic assay like that. So if you do have a patient, it sounds like maybe not the most common scenario with a high, for example, 21 gene recurrence score with lobular, would you still use chemotherapy? I would. I would trust that. But the one situation where I think that we often find ourselves using chemotherapy, but where I'm not sure it makes a lot of sense, is the patient who has a large lobular cancer where we would want to give preoperative therapy particularly we want to give preoperative therapy to shrink the tumor. And if it's a young patient, and let's imagine it's a big tumor, and let's imagine there's a lymph node involved, one often feels compelled to give chemotherapy as opposed to preoperative endocrine therapy. And as you know, there's really no track record of preoperative endocrine therapy for premenopausal women. But unfortunately, I don't think that it most of the time does a lot of good. And that's a situation where 
I think I might encourage a woman to just go ahead with surgery first rather than try preoperative chemotherapy in that setting. What about imaging and lobular cancer, particularly new modalities of imaging? There's kind of the traditional history that sometimes the tumor is bigger than it looks. Yeah, well, I think oftentimes with lobular cancers more than any other situation, and of course I would ultimately defer to my surgical colleagues on this, but my sense is that the tumor is often somewhat more diffuse than it looks. And, you know, you also have this situation with lobular cancers where there, for years, seems to be nothing going on in the breast. Women who have been having mammograms for years, breast exams for years, and then, lo and behold, present with an 8-centimeter cancer. I think most of us don't believe that that's an 8-centimeter cancer that suddenly grew there or grew very rapidly, but that somehow something changed and allowed cancer that was there to finally form a discrete mass. Is there something about the biology of this that makes it not amenable to traditional mammographic imaging? Do we understand sort of why? Yeah, well, there is loss of eketherin, so the cells tend not to stick to one another, which accounts for the classic pattern of single cells being seen on pathology. And I've always assumed, maybe naively, maybe accurately, that for whatever reason leads to the absence of a mass because there's just this diffuse spread through the breast or even maybe not through the entire breast but through an area that makes it more difficult to appreciate a clear mass. Another unusual thing about lobular cancer is the fact that sometimes you see recurrences in the GI tract. What's the incidence of that occurring? What kind of GI mets are seen? And is there an understanding about why? Well, the entire metastatic pattern of lobular cancer is a little different than ductal cancers. So these tumors tend, when they metastasize, to spread to serosal surfaces. So you see more in the way of pleural effusions. You see intra-abdominal involvement with ascites. And by all means, there can be patients with ductal cancer who have ascites and intra-abdominal involvement. But I always used to tell residents that they could look smart if, in fact, a patient with breast cancer presented with malignant ascites and they asked, is this a lobular cancer? Because I think certainly as often as not, and maybe more often than not, it is a lobular cancer in spite of the fact that lobular cancers account for only about 10% of all breast cancer. The other places where you occasionally see lobular cancer, you can see it infiltrating the GU tract as well, so there can be involvement of the bladder and the ureters. And in my mind, a metastatic pattern that continues to surprise me and I think surprise many clinicians, just the way in which it can spread. Oftentimes, very unusual presentations of metastatic breast cancer turn out to be lobular cancer. In the metastatic setting, chemotherapy does seem to work. Anecdotally, I think that drugs like capecitabine work particularly well in the metastatic setting which would go along with the fact that it tends to be a relatively slow-growing cancer, and a drug that's given chronically like that may be more effective in that setting. But that's never been demonstrated in randomized clinical trials. Let's go to your cases, beginning with your 47-year-old lady. So this is a woman who had presented in 2009 
at that time had a weekly estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, had an excision and a sentinel biopsy, received chemotherapy at that time, followed by hormonal therapy. And then in essentially 2014, developed a chest wall recurrence. It was a small recurrence, it was excised, and she had previously not received radiation therapy, having had a mastectomy, and for a relatively early stage cancer. She was irradiated, and the question is, does she get systemic therapy? And this is where I think that one looks at the so-called KLOR study. The KLOR study was a study that was now presented probably two years ago, maybe almost three years ago, and was work from the International Breast Cancer Study Group and the NSABP and a whole host of other investigators. A study that was initially intended to be much larger than it was in the end. It had about 250 patients, a mix of patients, all of whom had local regional recurrence, some of whom had in-breast recurrence, some of whom had chest wall recurrence or nodal recurrence. All of the patients had had some form of previous treatment. And the question was, was there value associated with the use of chemotherapy in this setting? And as you can imagine, it was a mix of patients with both ER negative and ER positive cancers. This is a study that I have to say, I tell people, you can use to support any bias that you have. Because it is small enough and it has been analyzed in enough different ways that you can find some reason to do what you do or don't want to do in this study. Overall, the benefit associated with chemotherapy was quite modest. But in patients who had ER negative cancers, if you want to look at that specific subset, there was a substantial benefit. And so in this woman, oh, and I should also mention that relatively few of the patients had very early recurrences. If I remember correctly, the median time to recurrence in that study was about five years. So this is a woman who's several years out from her chemotherapy, actually five years out from her chemotherapy, who has what is now an ER negative recurrence. It was weekly ER positive to begin with and seems to have lost that ER. So it's ER negative and PR negative and HER2 negative. And I personally think that this is somebody who certainly deserves consideration of another course of adjuvant chemotherapy. I would not be inclined to give her another course of chemotherapy if this happened six months after her last course, because I would think of that as more chemotherapy-resistant disease. But here, I think with the idea that there could be micrometastatic dissemination from this local recurrence, I think it's reasonable to consider it. And I think within the paper, you can certainly find justification for doing that in a patient like this. In a woman who had previously had an anthracycline, I wouldn't give an anthracycline again, and I would give either TC or CMF. If a woman had previously had a different regimen, I would think about giving an anthracycline-based regimen. So what did you actually do with her? So she received four cycles of TC, 
And we talked about the pros and cons and what we know and what we don't know. And, and of course, you know, what we know here extends beyond K-Lor because you are forced to extrapolate to some degree from a much larger literature. Unfortunately, not a literature that's replete with randomized clinical trials. So what would you have estimated her chance of future recurrence or metastatic disease just purely based on the fact that she had a chest wall recurrence after a mastectomy? Yeah, so that's, I think, some of the data that you use and you start extrapolating from. So traditionally, one would say that a woman with a chest wall recurrence such as this after a mastectomy, and this is, of course, different from an in-breast recurrence, has a very high chance of developing metastatic disease, a chance that may be as high as 80 to 90%. We do know that there are certain factors that increase or decrease that risk. So patients who have a short disease-free interval are at higher risk. Patients who present initially with more advanced disease, so who have extensive node-positive disease or very large tumors, are also at higher risk when they develop a chest wall recurrence. So maybe in this woman, the chances are a little bit lower, but they're certainly in excess of 50%. And with that in mind, and with the potential that there's going to be benefit and some risk reduction from this, I think it makes sense to treat somebody like this. So, you know, looking back at the original surgery, I mean, she had a fairly small tumor, 1.9 centimeter, node negative. Any anatomic reason that you would think she'd have a local recurrence? How often do you see local recurrence after mastectomy nowadays? Well, you don't see it commonly for two reasons. One, because in patients who are at higher risk for local recurrence, the radiation oncologists more and more administer radiation, which decreases the chance of a local recurrence. And in patients who are at low risk, they are at low risk. But even someone like this has probably somewhere in the range of a 5% chance. I'm pulling that a little bit out of thin air. Probably roughly a 5% chance of a chest wall recurrence. And I think most people believe that that is some combination of lymphatic or hematogenous dissemination of cancer. So how would you have approached the same kind of situation if the tumor had been HER2 positive? Let's assume she got trastuzumab chemotherapy, adjuvant chemotherapy, and then again had a chest wall recurrence you know, a couple years later. Yeah, because of the highly effective nature of anti-HER2 therapy, I would be that much more enthusiastic about giving some form of therapy, and I would give her some anti-HER2 therapy. I'm being a little vague here, and you're going to pin me down on it, I think, with some chemotherapy. I actually think the chemotherapy partner is not terribly critical. I think the big decision is, does this woman get trastuzumab alone or trastuzumab and pertuzumab? If you think of it as adjuvant therapy, there's no established role for pertuzumab yet in the adjuvant setting, although it's approved in the neoadjuvant setting. And if you think of it as metastatic disease, pertuzumab would be a standard first-line therapy. And I would probably treat her with, unless her insurance refused it and I would push back on them, I'd probably treat her with trastuzumab, pertuzumab, for a year and some chemotherapy, probably a taxane for four to six months. 
Another possible option, and I think this might be a good time to just sort of bring it up in general, is TDM1. Can you explain what that is? Are there any situations, for example, in an older, frail patient where you might consider TDM1 in this kind of situation rather than what you described there with the chemotherapy and trastuzumab pertuzumab? So TDM1, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a drug antibody conjugate. So it is DM1, which is a microtubule inhibitor that is linked to trastuzumab. Trastuzumab both acts as a monoclonal antibody that has its own impact on cancer, and it acts as essentially a delivery system of chemotherapy to the HER2-positive cancer cell. The drug antibody conjugate enters the cell. It goes through lysosomal degradation, and the result is it is highly effective and fairly minimally toxic. At the moment, what we know is that TDM1 is essentially as effective as trastuzumab plus chemotherapy. Unfortunately, adding pertuzumab to TDM1 does not appear to add benefit. And while there has been no direct comparison of TDM1 versus a regimen like paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, given the results of different studies, the presumption is that TDM1 is probably not quite as effective as the dual antibody combination. But on the other hand, it is much less toxic. So I think that in a person where you're trying to maximize treatment benefit, at this point in time in a patient like this, I would not use TDM1 But if the feeling were that this is someone who couldn't easily tolerate getting a taxane and trastuzumab and pertuzumab, and by the way, pertuzumab does clearly add side effects to trastuzumab. I mean, early on, people said, oh, you know, it's that much more effective and it's no more toxic than trastuzumab. It is. It adds fatigue. It adds significant diarrhea. And it's just not so easy. But in that elderly patient you describe who's got a chest wall recurrence, maybe that's a situation you would think about it. In the Alliance, we are actually looking at a single-arm study, or we're conducting a single-arm study, using TDM1 in elderly patients who are considered too frail for standard chemotherapy. So patients who have stage one through three breast cancer and who are receiving TDM1 as a single agent to see how effective it is in that setting. Well, it's really great. I hadn't heard about that one. Is that up and running now? It's up and running. That's awesome. Well, you also have an adjuvant trial in all comers in lower risk patients comparing TDM1 to paclitaxel trastuzumab. How would you compare, for example, because I think it's important for the surgeons to realize, you know, in terms of TDM1, particularly in terms of the alopecia, the lack of nausea, how would you compare, for example, those two regimens, paclitaxel with trastuzumab to TDM1 in terms of tolerability? I think that there's little question that TDM1 is dramatically easier to tolerate than paclitaxel trastuzumab. I think the single most obvious difference is that there isn't alopecia, which, as the surgeons know from hearing their patients' complaints, is one of the most distressing side effects that many women encounter. Of course, 
it's always interesting. You give drugs in the metastatic setting and you think that they're so well tolerated. You give them in the adjuvant setting where people aren't dealing with having had other regimens, they're not dealing with symptoms from their disease, and the drug turns out to be a little more toxic than you expected. And in the adjuvant setting, giving TDM1 as a single agent is clearly more toxic than just giving trastuzumab. But it's much easier than paclitaxel and trastuzumab. It'll be also interesting to see how you do see drops in platelet counts and liver function abnormalities, how that's going to play out in the adjuvant setting. Right. So one final variation of your case, and you know this had to be coming, which is the same situation in chest wall recurrence, except it's ER positive, HER2 negative. And again, I'll reference that think tank we did where a Dr. Norman Walmart created a lot of havoc by saying he routinely does oncotypes on local recurrences. Anyhow, how do you think through those patients, and what do you think about that suggestion? Yeah, so number one, I probably wouldn't do an oncotype on a local recurrence, except under some extraordinary circumstance. Number two, and I think that I was a little bit vague in terms of this case, but if she were still taking tamoxifen, we have no idea how to interpret oncotypes in somebody on tamoxifen. And finally, if in fact she had what I thought to be hormonally sensitive disease, so it's ER and PR positive, and we're not talking about 10% on each, then in that situation, I wouldn't be in a rush to give her chemotherapy. Of course, that would also depend a little bit on whether this had happened on hormonal therapy or not too. But I think that the Kalor study provides the kind of evidence you would expect that this is a less effective approach that is giving chemotherapy in women who have ER-positive recurrences. And so in the patient who particularly is off endocrine therapy, has an ER and PR-positive local recurrence, most of the time I'm going to give hormonal therapy and I'm not going to consider chemotherapy for a long time. So as long as we're talking about adjuvant chemotherapy also, I want to just plug in there because I thought it was pretty cool and wanted to make the surgeons aware of it and see what you thought about it. We've been seeing some data over the last, seems like for a while, but we saw some really interesting data in June at the ASCO meeting on the use of scalp cooling to try to prevent alopecia in the adjuvant setting. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the background to what was presented there and what you thought about it? So this has been percolating around for the last few years, as you alluded to. Most of us have largely ignored it. I think it's probably time not to ignore it. There are a couple of different systems. They're a nuisance. When we have patients who do this, they essentially come in with a cooler filled with these devices, and they're by no means comfortable because, you know, it's essentially like putting your head in a big ice bucket and you get oftentimes a pretty significant headache from it. It doesn't feel good. But with many chemotherapy regimens, it seems to work pretty well. And so I think that many of us are going to have to figure out ways of making it easier for patients to use these if they want to as part of their chemotherapy process. Yeah, I think the thing that caught a lot of people's attention was the photographs that were shown. And 
I mean, these people either had bald heads or they had hair on their heads. Yeah, yeah. Now, with one of the first systems, they would tell people not to wash their hair and barely to comb their hair. And so they'd be going around the whole first six months looking not so great. But I'm not sure that there are quite the same prohibitions on hair washing any longer. And I think that as with most of these things, they improve over time. So it's interesting that you brought it up because I've been thinking about this and thinking about the fact that as a program, we needed to address this. What do patients say? Is it like painful? I mean, that cold sensation? Yes. But it's just for what, like a couple hours or how long? It's for a couple hours. Hmm. Yeah. I've got one, I don't know if you heard about it. We had a doc in practice who had a patient who was a concert flautist or flutist. Very, very worried about peripheral neuropathy, you know, which is obviously a common problem with chemotherapy, particularly the taxanes. And for better or worse, she tried cooling her fingers. Oh, my you know, gosh. She, she, like, would hold on to these bags of frozen peas and ice and stuff. I mean, I know it seems kind of weird, but any logic to that? Well, so, I mean, I think if you decrease blood flow to your hands, and we're talking about a peripheral neuropathy that there is some logic. The only thing that there might not be logic to is doing it for a limited period of time around the infusion because, of course, the half-life of these drugs is by no means short oftentimes. So I actually cannot recall the half-life of paclitaxel, but it's many hours. So you would have to be ready to invest in a lot of packages of frozen peas. <laughs> Well, we'll see. Let's go on to your next case, the 38-year-old lady. So this is a young woman who presents with triple negative breast cancer, large T2 lesion, palpable axillary node, and presents for consideration of further therapy, whether that's neoadjuvant therapy or surgery. So I guess the way I would think about this is that Absent a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, and in a 38-year-old with a triple negative breast cancer, we would routinely do genetic testing. And let's imagine for the moment that we already know the answer, and she does not have a BRCA mutation. So assuming that, in my mind, there's absolutely no reason not to consider this woman a very reasonable potential candidate for conservative surgery and radiation. Given the fact that she's got a large tumor and she's got a large node, and for those purists among you, if you wanna say that she's had that node fna to prove that it's cancer, that's fine. We had little doubt that it was cancer. Most of the time we actually do fna these. But this is somebody who's going to get radiation no matter what happens, whether she has a lumpectomy or whether she has a mastectomy, whether she has a great response to initial therapy or whether she doesn't, because decisions about radiation in patients who receive neoadjuvant therapy tend to be based on a combination of the post-treatment staging and the pre-treatment staging. And in this young woman who presents with a large T2 tumor and a big positive node, our radiation oncologists are going to be ready to irradiate. 
So here, in my mind, avoiding reconstruction makes a great deal of sense. And so what I would like to see happen is for her to be able to get neoadjuvant therapy, have a nice response in the breast, be able to undergo something less than a mastectomy. And of course, we know that in the triple negative setting, the response rate to neoadjuvant therapy is actually quite high. The clinical response rate is in excess of 80%. The pathologic complete response rate, depending on the regimen and the study you look at, ranges anywhere from about 35% to as high as potentially 50 or 60%. And finally, let me just say, I see absolutely no reason not to give her neoadjuvant therapy. We don't know if, in fact, she says that she wants to have a mastectomy no matter what, then I suppose that it would be fine to just go ahead and do her surgery up front, although you may be able to decrease the extent of the axillary surgery by giving neoadjuvant therapy, and I just see no disadvantage in terms of approaching this medically first. Just very briefly, I'm curious about your general approach in terms of neoadjuvant therapy in patients with HER2-positive disease and in patients with ER-positive HER2-negative disease. Yeah, so let's do the last first. In patients with ER-positive HER2-negative disease, we first make a decision about hormonal therapy versus chemotherapy. And in the vast, vast, vast majority of premenopausal women, we do not give preoperative endocrine therapy. I won't say that we've never done it, but it would be the very rare premenopausal woman who would get preoperative endocrine therapy because essentially we're in a data-free zone. In postmenopausal women who have ER and PR positive or ER and or PR positive disease, we often give preoperative endocrine therapy, although, of course, much less so in somebody who has high-grade disease, in somebody who has ER positive and PR negative disease, where you think that there's a smaller likelihood of seeing a response. And if we're going to give chemotherapy, we typically give standard adjuvant chemotherapy, which in our hands is typically AC followed by paclitaxel. I think the one situation where you don't want to give chemotherapy is if you're not sure that someone's going to be needing chemotherapy at all. So in the patient who doesn't have a large burden of disease, where you think that you're going to get an oncotype and that that person, in spite of having a two or three centimeter cancer, may be someone who you're not going to give chemotherapy to, then that's a situation where we would all favor doing surgery first. If you knew that the oncotype score was high, would you think more about chemotherapy? I would. Do you actually get a 21 gene recurrence score in the neoadjuvant setting yourself? I typically don't. But it's one of these situations where I would not remotely criticize someone for doing it. We think about doing it. I could talk to you in six months and tell you that we've decided to routinely do it on all ER-positive patients where we're contemplating neoadjuvant therapy. For patients with ER and PR-positive disease, I think the situation is complicated for a number of reasons, including the fact that some of those patients are patients 
where you don't want to give chemotherapy. And increasingly, we're giving less and less chemotherapy in the setting of ER-positive disease. So let's just divide this up a little bit. In a premenopausal woman who has enough disease that you feel like you need to shrink the tumor in order to do conservative surgery. That's a situation where most of the time we would end up using preoperative chemotherapy because there's no track record for preoperative endocrine therapy and you have a compelling local therapy reason to use preoperative treatment. In postmenopausal women, the situation is a little different because we have an extensive track record with preoperative endocrine therapy, and much of the time there, we actually give preoperative endocrine therapy. We're less inclined to, if we're absolutely convinced someone's ultimately going to get chemotherapy because they have high-grade disease or a very high burden of disease. And finally, you know, I think in any situation where you're not convinced that you would give chemotherapy in the adjuvant setting, you should never give it in the neoadjuvant setting. And so you have somebody who you would use an oncotype to help guide your chemotherapy decision in the adjuvant setting, then by all means, don't just jump to give them chemotherapy. Now, we don't routinely get an oncotype or any test of its sort before giving neoadjuvant therapy, but I think that it's something that some people do, and it's a decision that we have considered, and we may change our mind about it. So how about HER2-positive disease? So HER2-positive disease, outside of a clinical trial, in the neoadjuvant setting, our standard is to treat somebody with combination trastuzumab and pertuzumab with chemotherapy. And typically, we give patients THP, paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab, and we typically do it for a period of 12 weeks and then do surgery and typically give four cycles of AC after that. It's entirely reasonable to give a different sort of regimen. It's entirely reasonable to give the anthracycline before surgery. I don't think that there is one single standard approach. And I think that the question that is going to increasingly come up that we're not going to have a clear answer for is how to use the response from the preoperative therapy in making decisions about what the appropriate adjuvant therapy is. And so let's imagine you have somebody who gets 12 weeks of THP or four cycles of TCHP and has a pathologic complete response. Is that somebody who doesn't need two more cycles of TCHP or somebody who doesn't need four cycles of AC, or is that somebody who's going to benefit even more from it? I think most of us think that ultimately there's going to be a way of using response to neoadjuvant therapy to guide that decision, but we're a little bit in a quandary at the moment. So in terms of the lower bar to utilize neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus anti-HER therapy, the FDA will allow pertuzumab or approve pertuzumab in patients who have two centimeters and greater, even completely node negative. Are you giving neoadjuvant therapy? A patient could go to surgery, very straightforward. They got a two centimeter tumor. Are you going to give it or are you going to give it post-op? 
So that's a situation where in somebody with a 2.1 centimeter cancer, clinically node negative, wants a lumpectomy, can have a lumpectomy, we'd be a little bit more inclined to go ahead and do surgery at that point in time. I think it's the patient where the ability to do surgery becomes a little bit more iffy where we get into it. And so that's typically somebody who's got a cancer that's three centimeters or bigger. I actually think that the FDA was a little loose in their approval of pertuzumab-based neoadjuvant regimens in approving it for patients with just barely stage two disease. Although I guess you can make the argument that even with those barely stage two disease, you could decrease the likelihood of having an axillary node dissection. You could, although it would be nice to see that demonstrated. Well, I'd like to know, actually, I was trying to think what the model show about, I don't know if there is a model with HER2 positive specifically, but a two centimeter clinically node negative, what the likelihood is that it's going to be node positive. Yeah, but, you know, if in fact that patient has a positive node or two and has a sentinel biopsy and is having a lumpectomy, she doesn't need more nodal surgery, even if you don't eradicate the disease up front. I mean, we know that from the ACASOG study. Right, that's a good point. I know that lots of people have done it. I don't think that we should use the FDA approval of pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting as an excuse to give more neoadjuvant therapy than we need to give, just so that we can give somebody pertuzumab. And I think all of this will be much more straightforward and much easier when we get the results of Affinity. Because if Affinity is a positive study, then we'll be giving pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting, in the adjuvant setting, it won't make a difference. If Affinity is a negative study, then I think that there's going to be a dramatic decline in the use of pertuzumab in the neoadjuvant setting as well. Of course, Affinity is the big adjuvant trial looking at the addition of pertuzumab. But there was some data presented just in June at the ASCO meeting from the Neosphere neoadjuvant study in HER2-positive disease. And we always sort of assume that PATH-CR and pre-op therapy isn't going to change compared to post-op therapy they actually saw a difference, I think, even though it wasn't, there was too few patients to make it statistically significant in disease-free survival with the addition of pertuzumab. Well, in spite of the negative result with ALTO, ALTO was the study that looked at the addition of lapatinib to trastuzumab and failed to demonstrate that giving those two anti-HER2 therapies was better than giving trastuzumab alone. In spite of that result, I think most people expect that the Affinity study, which is a straightforward randomization of chemotherapy plus trastuzumab versus chemotherapy plus trastuzumab and pertuzumab, I think most people think that that study will ultimately be a positive study. So why don't we finish out with your 52-year-old lady with a 2-centimeter ERPR-positive HER2-negative tumor and two positive sentinel nodes anxious to avoid chemotherapy. Yeah, so this is where I have a little bit of an issue with the recent ASCO guidelines, as supportive as I am of ASCO guidelines. I have no difficulty getting an oncotype in a woman like this. In my mind, there are very few biomarkers 
that are used for either prognostication or prediction where there's a huge difference between the node-negative and node-positive setting. We know in the node-negative setting that Oncotype is useful, both in terms of predicting the risk of recurrence and in terms of guiding us towards a patient population who seem to get a bigger benefit from chemotherapy. We have a moderate amount of data in the node-positive setting as well. Much of that comes from Kathy Albain's old trial of chemotherapy plus tamoxifen versus tamoxifen in postmenopausal node-positive patients where Oncotype, once again, was both prognostic and predictive. And so in this patient, while I have no fundamental objection to just giving her chemotherapy if that's what she wants, and if a doctor feels that he or she wants to give chemotherapy to all node-positive patients, so be it. But if, in fact, she turned out to have a low or low-intermediate oncotype, I would also be entirely comfortable treating her with endocrine therapy. This lady, when you say she was anxious to avoid chemotherapy, would she have taken chemotherapy, for example? Did you just say with her, okay, if this number comes back, are you going to do this, X, Y, Z? Did you plan it out ahead of time? So I always plan it out ahead of time in the sense that I don't think you should get a test unless you know what you're going to do with the result. And the way I typically approach this with patients is, you know, in somebody who's at particularly low risk because of a low burden of disease, but we're we're still getting an oncotype, so a woman with a 1.2 centimeter node negative cancer, that's the situation where I'm going to tell her that the only way that we're going to do chemotherapy is if she has a high score or something very close to a high score since I don't think we know what to do with the whole intermediate range. In someone like this, I typically say, if the score is low, I'd be very comfortable not doing chemotherapy. If the score is high, we clearly will do chemotherapy. And if it turns out in the intermediate range, and for me, the intermediate range is somewhere between 20 and 26 or something like that, if it's in that range, then we're going to have to think about it a little bit more. And that also allows the patient some time to contemplate these things before the test comes back. But I think it's a mistake to get the test unless you have a sense of what you're going to do. And for that matter, if she said to me, I'm not taking chemotherapy under any circumstance, then there's no reason to get the test. You're only getting it if you're ambivalent, either you or the patient, about what to do. And, you know, finally I'll say... She was interested in avoiding chemotherapy, but the truth is 95% of my patients are interested in avoiding chemotherapy. So I very frequently get oncotypes in patients who have up to three positive lymph nodes. I typically don't in patients who have more nodal involvement than that because the risk of recurrence is high enough that it just makes me nervous. I think that'll change over time. It's where it is at the moment. But in somebody who has node-positive disease where it's weekly ER-positive, PR-negative, high-grade, I wouldn't bother to get an oncotype. So I was trying to predict what happened. I get so many cases presented to me like this, I start to think, of course, there's a selection in how people present. But, you know, a really common ending to these kind of cases 
is to find out that the patient had an intermediate score and then decided not to get chemo. Yeah. So that's my guess. What happened? So she had a score of 20 and decided not to get chemotherapy. I think of 20 as sort of on the low end of intermediate. So yeah, that's pretty low. That was pretty comfortable. But it's interesting, you know, that people sometimes, you know, you're reading between the lines about, quote, avoiding chemo, as you said, is pretty variable. But a lot of times it'll take a high score, I think, to convince a woman like that to be treated. I actually think that there's been a shift over time. And when you and I were practicing 20 years ago, I think there was a sense that women, partly out of fear, partly given the way we used to present the decisions, would take chemotherapy for a tiny benefit. When I talk to people now, I get a pretty consistent response, which is that if the benefit is less than an absolute benefit of 2 to 3%, people aren't interested in pursuing it. If the benefit is 5%, almost everybody's interested in pursuing it. And there's a lot of ambivalence in that sort of 2 to 3 to 5% range. And when I'm talking to somebody, now let's imagine this woman had a score of 10 for a minute. Now, in that situation, in my mind, it's very clear what to do. But if I were estimating her potential benefits of chemotherapy, what I would tell her is that they range between zero, truly zero, and a few percent. And when I say zero, it's not that she's the person who doesn't benefit out of 100 people who get it. It's that of those 100 people who I'm giving chemotherapy to, nobody benefits. And you're going to figure maybe one or even two people are going to have a real bad problem like leukemia. No, exactly. And you can't ignore these things. The other thing to keep in mind is, of course, that chemotherapy only prevents recurrence in the first five years. So some of this risk of recurrence that you get with Oncotype is over the course of 10 years. And it's only the early recurrences you get rid of. Yeah, that's interesting. There are a complicated set of decisions that you have to make with people. But I find that most people are really able to engage in a discussion about this. And while some will say, you know, just tell me what to do, most want to play some part of it.